Can I just say this? If you're a woman who has a podcast and you want me to be on your podcast, I'll be glad to. And this week, you're about to hear from Kim Honeycutt, superb therapist, buddy of mine, who uh, has her own podcast. I was on her podcast this week. It's called Flip Your Lid with Kim Honeycutt, Honeycutt with two T's, because of course. And she's on mine this week. And I don't think I've ever done that before. We're in the same week. You can go listen to me. And can I just say, I talk an awful lot for a man who's supposed to be listening in this week's podcast. And uh, I talk even more on her podcast. It was, it was, it was a way to get cheap therapy, free therapy, because she's a therapist and a very good one. So I, I keep asking her my, my therapy questions. Um, but she's, oh my God, oh my God, what a story. What a story and what a storyteller. You'll learn a lot. Kim Honeycutt. When I started talking openly about my mom abusing me, and I gave very small examples here, people said, but she's your mom, but she loves you. So they were telling me that abuse was love. This is In Her Words, a podcast from manlisting.com, featuring one man listening to the stories of real women in their own words. In Her Words, a conversation worth hearing because every woman deserves to be heard. Hey there, hi there. I'm Stuart Watson. This is In Her Words podcast, my podcast. Kim Honeycutt is a therapist, a psychotherapist, an author, and a minister. Uh, she's written a book called But Your Mother Loves You um, about overcoming a cycle of toxic love and living a life without shame. And she and I talk about how the rooms of 12-step recovery are really not oriented to address shame and trauma. And so we spend a lot of time talking about recovery and resilience and healing and coming back from the devastation of addiction. And we also talk about the next steps outside the rooms which is to step into another room, perhaps, perhaps the room of a therapist. So lots to learn. I'm intensely curious, and it gets, it gets very personal with me. Thank you, Kim Honeycutt. Where were you born? I was born in Fort Knox, Ireland Army Hospital. $7.50. My dad said I'm more and made up for my cheap birth price. <laughs> <laughs> and so he says that all my antics and all the hospital stations, all the things I've done, rectified my cheap birth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was low cost up front. You, yeah. You, the costs yeah. were back in loaded. Right. They were costs. <laughs> He figured out how expensive you were. He sure did. And I still take his money, and I will always take my daddy's money. Always. Because it's a way of showing love. How did Kim learn to give love and receive love? Mm, that's such a great question. That's such a profound question. So I think first I had to figure out a way to have agency over my parts to figure out my sense of self. And to do that, I mean, the key word you use was receive. 
And when we have shame, we don't know how to receive. We just stay so closed down. And any closed system can't receive. And so that has been the journey in teaching other people, how do you get past the shame so you can receive? So for me, honestly, it was a long journey. Part of it started with getting sober at the age of 24. I've been in and out of treatment centers from age 13 to 24. I was very, very drunk growing up, and that's how I survived all the trauma. And so for me, alcohol was a coping mechanism. And, and I don't want to put that lightly because I know a lot of people die from this disease. But that for me, it was, it was what I did because there was an absence of self. What was the trauma? There's a lot of different trauma. One, and that goes back to my book, But Your Mother Loves You, is that my mother's from a different country. She's Panamanian. And so the culture's a little different about how you raise a child. But she was very overly attached, to put it non-clinically, to my brother and very disorganized attachment with me. It meant that fear and love got coupled. Tell me a story about your mother. Sure, I can do that. So I, so I'll, so I'll. I have so many stories. Well, I'm tell me an adult one. Let me tell you an adult one. Okay. To start off with, so, and again, my mother and I have reconciled, and I don't suggest anyone reconcile with a toxic person unless you hear directly from God. You've done enough therapy that you don't lose yourself trying to get someone else's attention. A huge part of my issue in the attachment style I'm talking about because I was emotionally neglected, that I was always seeking someone else's approval. Adults don't seek people's approval, right? Like, again, you have enough agency, have enough, have enough sense of self that someone else's approval is nice, but you don't, you don't have to bank on that. And that's why amends, super tricky. Yes. Super tricky. Yes. Because you're going to go back to the person mm -hmm. sometimes. Mm -hmm. I know women who have gone back to a father who sexually assaulted them and made amends to them. Yes, me too. And that is incredibly crippling, devastating. I don't suggest that whatsoever. And that is where I think some 12-step principles and practicalities, you know, traditions be become detrimental because that program was not set up to address shame and trauma and attachment styles. God bless you for saying that. I'm going to yeah. put that on a tape Please loop. Do. Please do. And I just... And, I'll and, and no disrespect to 12-step. I love it. I owe my life to it. Me too. But there's some things like a broken leg that it is just yeah. not equipped and it's trying right. to shoehorn itself. That's right. That's right. And so I rewrote the 12 steps, particularly towards people who have a preoccupied attachment, fawning, codependency, right? And fawning, I talked about a minute ago, fawning unaddressed, unresolved, as an adult, we'll call it codependency, right? So I rewrote the 12 steps and included trauma, shame, emotional needs, all the things I felt like it was missing. Here's an example. So one time we had an event at my family's house, and so my brother was there, his, at that time, wife, kids, my dad, my mom, and... And I don't remember, it was one of the few times we got together without it being a holiday. Like it might have been a 4th of July, but it wasn't a time you give gifts. So my mother at some point goes and gets a bunch of gifts and brings them and gave everyone there a gift but me. And so I said, so, hello? Did I get anything? And she said, no, because I couldn't think of anything to give you. I was like, cash? Like, give me cash. Give me, give me a piece of bubble gum. I don't, I don't care, right? So that is a microcosm 
of my entire life of just always being just undervalued, invisible, and to be seen by her was painful. And that's where it becomes a disorganized attachment. And as an adult, it's called an unresolved attachment. You might as well just say it's unresolved trauma. Disorganized means that fear and love gets coupled, meaning that I would be in fear of my mother because she would be screaming. And that really affects your autonomic nervous system tremendously, especially as a child. And then I would want her to comfort me because she's my mom. So that's where fear and love gets coupled. And that happens to a lot of people and that very much leads to getting into intimate partner violence relationships as an adult. Somebody, um, well, I used to think if you didn't get shot or raped, mm. you didn't have trauma. Yeah, that's or if you lie. didn't witness people right. getting shot right. or raped on the regular, yeah. you didn't have trauma. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. baby steps. Mm -hmm. What does trauma mean? Great question. So let me give you two definitions. Trauma means disconnection from safety. So it means something happens to you that's beyond your life experiences at that time. Relationship trauma means that someone of authority, an attachment figure, a parent grandparent, priest. pastor, priest, teacher. etc., teacher, someone along those lines, Uncle. exactly, disconnects you from safety, from trust, from sense of self. They violate. That's right. And for a lot of us have relationship trauma, we have to trust the person that is untrustworthy because that's the only person in the house to take care of you. So that is part of it that you, the more you get separate from safety, safety and connection, the further you get away from understanding your true sense of self. And that's why we fragment, we develop different parts, adaptive parts of ourselves, parts that can interact and keep you safe in control at that table, the family table, at the corporation table, somewhere else. And that is not true self. And so to me, the 12 steps started a process of me of identifying the parts of self and figure out who I actually am and who I'm called to be. So that again, I have agency over me instead of a drug having it or a person or approval seeking having it. And agency essentially means that you're accepting God's gift that you're the only one who can do you. Yes, that's exactly right. Like I may not have control over whether I drink or not today, but I do have control over whether I make it to the meeting at 6 p.m. That's right. And it's, it's also just a, an awareness. So everyone has an ego, but your ego's job is to protect you and it's to keep you small. I'm sitting here feeling scared, like you're... Scared of what? I don't know. Hmm. So what? So some part of you just got triggered, right? I feel like I haven't. There's work I need to do. Yeah. I, that, well, you're still breathing, so yes. But I'm like, I'm 63 freaking years old, well, father you, of four. Yeah. I could get Social Security. Why is <laughs> Why is this bugging me? So I mean, it's a great question, and it's but what you're doing right now is being curious, and that curiosity is the path to growth. Without curiosity towards self and others, I mean, that's the, that's the awareness that gets us out of level one ego and gets us to a place of really trying to, I'm curious why I treat people the way I treat them. Why do I treat myself 
the way I treat myself. Right? Why can why can I buy you uh, a cup of coffee at Starbucks, but if you try to buy me a cup of coffee, I don't think I'm worthy and I freak out. Right? I've been How, there, done that. Right. Curiosity about all that, because that comes back to a sense of worth. If I know I'm worthy, it means there's a sense of connection. But connection comes from emotional needs being fulfilled. And that's what builds trust. Emotional needs are like, I need to be seen. I need to be heard. I need to feel important. I need to be respected. All that leads to a sense of connection. So here's the real big thing. All right. Um, some people pick a role, perfectionist, badass, yeah. you know, delinquent, mm-hmm. criminal, and it works for them and they stick with it yeah. for the rest of their lives. Even though it stops working at some point. It may not, but they're not going to let go of it. Right. And then there are others of us who go, if I stick with this role, A, very painful, right? throwing up blood, yeah. you know, and B, it's going to kill me. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's going to kill me and that bothers me as a secondary thing, but it's not going to be a fun death. Yeah. Like I can't just go to sleep. Right. It's not going to be quick. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a, kind of a long road to more hell. Yeah. How did you, A, let go of the thing that was dragging you to the bottom, mm. and then B, and this is not guaranteed either, heal? Yeah. Because it's a two two steps, and most people don't take the first one. Right. And most people who do take the first one never make it to the second. Right. And I mean, and really, you're, you're almost. With, I don't know if you know you don't. You're almost quoting Ken Wilber, who was an integrative psychologist who I really really like. And it goes back to what I was saying about ego, that level one means it's simplicity. You believe what your parents told you. You believe what you've heard in church since you were five years old. Like you keep it really simple and anybody who doesn't look like you, sound like you, act like you, something's wrong with them. And so that level one keeps you feeling superior. Other people feel very inferior, but that is the same thing. Tell me a story. How did it happen to Kim? Okay. So age of 24, came to at Mercy Detox. Wasn't my first time there. But Who took you there? That time? Oh my gosh. I don't know. I can't remember this moment. Were you working? Yes, I was actually a probation and parole officer. I had a badge and gun. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of stories with Probably that did too. not have the badge or the gun at Mercy Detox. I did not. They would not let me. So there was that. And Have you ever discharged that weapon in a wild, <laughs> random? Well, there's a, there's a huge story there of part of my bottom, but it still took me two years after that. But I'll give you the quick version of it is that I graduated from college and went back to Columbia to see two friends. We graduated together. Columbia University? So I went to Columbia College, college. for undergrad. I went to USC for graduate school. Columbia College is? In Columbia. It's a private women's college. It's a Columbia, Christian school. Columbia, South Carolina? Mm-hmm. Columbia, South Carolina. Okay. Near USC, because I'm a Gamecock people. Okay, So, the long story, I can even tell you how I ended up at Columbia College, because it's, it's right. a crazy story. But 
I got incredibly drunk and it was a wild night and my friend Amy knocked my uh, knocked the beer out of my hand because she was appalled that I was so drunk and still drinking and I physically attacked her and beat the crap out of her. Prior to that, I had reached for my gun, my service revolver from being an officer, to kill her and to kill both of them. And my gun wasn't there. For the only time in my short career as an officer, I didn't know where my gun was. So there's Where a, was it? It was at the office. I left it at the office. Why? Because God is good. Because I would have killed them. I was so drunk. And I thought they were plotting to kill me. But they actually were just giving each other directions how to get to Amy's house. And this is all... It's a crazy story, and I get uh, I love that I get to go different places and share the, the depth of this, of how where my drinking took me and where God has brought me today. Like, it's just so different. But I went to kill both of them. My gun wasn't there, and then I attacked Amy, and I beat the crap out of her. And there was an incredible story how God let me make amends to her for that. How did God let you make amends for that? All right. So... I, I remember waking up the next day and and not having a complete memory that what had happened, but being told that I had attacked Amy. And I, I just remember saying, I will never drink again. And by the end of the day, I had a beer in my hand because the shame was so much, right? The remorse of what I'd done to my college best friend was so much. So I kept drinking two years after that, got sober, woke up in detox, started the, going to meetings, started the 12-step program. And got to steps eight and nine making amends and I remember my sponsor saying you make the list of who you can make amends to and who you would never approach <laughs> and so I put Amy in that category how do you contact someone and say hey I'm sorry I reached for a gun to kill you and I'm sorry I physically attacked you like that's just not enough like I don't know how y'all hadn't amends. spoken no no we didn't speak for probably 20 years actually so but I'm still living my life working 12 steps and I decided to go get my master's of social work from University of South Carolina. So I'm now back in Columbia for the first time since this incident happened where I beat the crap out of my friend Amy and went to pull a gun. And I'm taking classes and doing the deal and I needed to, I needed to print a paper. And this is back when we had floppy disk. And, and that's how I remember I went to U University of South Carolina library to go do the deal, print this um, paper off this disc, and there's no place to park. So I decided to go to FedEx Kinko's. So I pulled up and went inside and had my little floppy disc and I put it in the little motherboard, whatever that thing back in the day was called. And I'm trying to get the print, I can't get the print. I look up, I went to get someone to work there to help me. I looked up and Amy was standing there. And I, I knew that this was my burning bush. I knew that God was doing something. She recognized you? Yeah, I had incredible fear of approaching her, but I knew that this was a divine appointment. I, I had enough emotional, spiritual restoration at that point to know that this was bigger than me. And so I walked up, I said, hey, you willing to talk to me outside? And she said, yes, we walked outside. And she started telling me about that night. And this still makes me sad. She never told me what I did to her. And that she ended up in the hospital, and I didn't know that. And that her face was so bruised that when her dad walked in, he started crying when he saw her. And I stood there knowing I did that to her. But I had enough recovery 
to know that was not who I really am. And it's not me today. And I could absorb what she was saying without it going into that bucket of, I'm such a horrible person, I gotta go drink again. And I think that's why eight and nine are, are way down on the list of eight and nine, right? Because it's just so hard to face what we've done to people. It's also hard to face what people have done to us. And so I got to tell her that I've been sober at that point for probably a year and a half, two years, and that I was there working on my, my master's. And I asked her, I said, what, what are you doing at Kinko's? And, uh, and she said that she was in class, extremely intelligent. She's principal of the school now. And got really frustrated professor. I couldn't comprehend what the professor was saying, and the professor couldn't answer her questions very well. And so she got him left the class. She got in her car, picked up her, her cell phone, and the battery was dead. So she pulled over, went to a payphone, and didn't have change for a dollar, walked into Kinko's of all places to get change for a dollar. And because of that, it doesn't matter what any church does to me, it doesn't matter what anybody says to me about God or how they think I'm not a true believer, I will always, always know I'm loved by God. Because he did that for me. And he did that for her. And so I will never be the same after that. Never. And I will always share sharing that story. Did you go to church then? Or you? So after I got sober, I started going to church a little bit. What kind of a church? I was probably non-denominational at the time, and, and so I was kind of bouncing in and out. Why did you go to church? That's a good question. <laughs> I think the person that took me to detox, come to think of it, was taking me to church, and and so it, it later... Hot girls is an acceptable answer to that question, <laughs> by the way. I, I, it's an entirely open end. It's entirely there non-judgmental. Are, listen, there are certain meetings I went to because of... Because of good-looking women. There are hot girls. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I learned that your motives need to be good okay, when you go you to meetings. you and me both. <laughs> yeah, I learned the hard way, right? But, so I I got into the church, and I will, I will tell you that for 20 years, there's not one woman I met that I was attracted to. Hmm. I really thought that my sexual orientation had just fallen off. Like, I, it, like, it just fell to the ground. Like, I, at that point, was in pri- private practice, had been for a long time. Loved being a psychotherapist. Still, it's the Did best Did you always job. know you were oriented toward women? No. I was too drunk to know uh. anything. To know anything. And so, being sober, I thought, okay, this is really who I am, that I'm, that I'm gay. And then, somewhere in my sobriety, like, again, I just stopped dating. I dated some men. Never did anything for me. I've never been attracted to men. And, but I really really probably went more into workaholism and got very involved in my church. And, and I won't name my church um, at this time, but got very involved, became like the second chair for, for a teaching pastor. The pastor's out of town, then I'm the one that spoke. And then I met my now wife. And I fell hard and fast and just fell madly in love with her. She fell hard too? Yes. I don't, she felt the same way. She did. It was reciprocated, which was a miracle. So, uh, so I just knew at that point, like that was not going to n- not be me. And really, before that, I'd been attracted to somebody. I would have pursued it. I just wasn't attracted to anybody. I just had no adra- no desire. And so, 
I told her I was attracted to her because, you know, you and I both know being in recovery, honesty is paramount. Like, we have to be honest about things. And so me being Number one, her, nothing else number happens one. without it. Nothing else happens without it. Even if it's ugly. That's right. And that Even goes if back it's to wrong. It. That's right. And that goes back to sobriety, but also just for anybody, is just having agency over self, knowing that I, if I start deciding I can't tell you something because how are you going to respond, it's really narcissistic. I'm deciding you don't have emotional capacity. If you don't have emotional capacity, I'm now enabling you to never have emotional capacity. So I have learned that it's my job to talk, watch my delivery, be aware of my facial expression, be aware of my tone, but to say what I need to say and to not think I'm so amazing that I can hold everything for everybody. Like, no, you get to hold your part in this. All right, so that's been a huge part of, of my recovery, being able to receive is allowing other people to receive not holding back. I've had to learn to be, to really work on my delivery because people sound, say I sound very mean and harsh, but I don't mean to. I think I'm sweet and gentle. No, I don't. So, you've told me about some miracles, Yeah. but you could have had those miracles occur and still not gotten to the... Yes. Yes. The healing part, yes. um, the the addressing the things that yeah. is rapidly becoming yeah. apparent to right. me, yeah. that there are limitations to to what twelve step work does, yes. and when literally the textbook says we realize we know mm -hmm. only a little, yeah. that they meant what they said. They meant what they said. They did not see this as a uh -huh. panacea for every problem there yeah. was. Yeah. And if you have bipolar disorder, mm -hmm. probably mm -hmm. not going to be addressed in mm -hmm. the 12 steps. That's right. Well, and post-traumatic stress disorder or post-traumatic stress syndrome is the only anxiety disorder that's directly correlated to addiction. And so majority of people sitting in any type of 12-step program, there's some trauma, meaning something happened that disconnected them from safety. And in that gap... And it may have been as a function of drinking and using, because right. that lifestyle is inherently, whether you're having too much to drink, getting behind the wheel, wheel of a car, or mm -hmm. putting yourself in certain circumstances, mm -hmm. is inherently dangerous. Danger. Mm -hmm. Further danger. Like, I caused the danger. I right. am the danger. Right. That's right. And, but in that gap between trauma and safety, that's the behavior. Like, I have to put something in. Or that's productivity, performance, perfectionism, skewed perceptions of things. And, and this, is, this is what I love to teach about. Like, your first story is what we call your old story. That, your childhood develops a conditioned self. You learn what someone else tells you who you are. The process, the healing process that I stepped into and you stepped into is what's actually authentic and what's inauthentic. And it's figuring out, being, me being gregarious and obnoxious and sarcastic, is that who I am or is that who I have to be to sit at the table with my family? And so that's the journey, is going from an old story to a new story and deciding to be a new self. I have to be able to look at things differently. I have to be able to see it accurately and can, to make my decisions. I Hi, I'm Dr. Kim, the parentologist. As a wife, mom, therapist, and all-around juggler like most of you, I lead a hectic life, and sometimes that means indulging in foods on the go that my stomach doesn't always agree with. 
Thankfully, Pepto-Bismol provides me fast and effective relief for all kinds of upset stomachs. Having a little too many guilty pleasures at a family barbecue or birthday celebration may lead to indigestion or heartburn, so I always keep Pepto on hand to get fast relief when I need it the most. Pepto-Bismol, use as directed and keep out of reach of children. I run the risk of making this about me, but I'm going to... Is that a, me, is that a me, question? Is that... let, me, let, me, let me ask a question, <laughs> but it's entirely selfish. Well, that's curse you are. That's fine. It's we're... a selfish question. My understanding is that we're made up of, like, I think of it as three cards. Mm-hmm. And we may turn over the cards or we may not recognize. We may not yeah. turn over the cards. Yeah. The first one is DNA. Uh-huh. The second one is what happened around us, what right. we were told, you right. know, how we were, and there are two discrete things. Uh-huh. And the third one is what we tell ourselves, mm. like the story we write. Yeah. And when we realize, oh, the story I write is the only one that mm. I really have agency over. Right. Like those other two stories, right. yeah. I can go back and retell them. Right. But the only one I really control is the story I tell about the first two. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's a great way of putting it. I, I'm a neuro nerd. I, I love studying autonomic nervous system, parasympathetic, sympathetic, how that plays in. So I hear that. I think it's a great way of putting it. I also think there's a simplicity in that. And I want people to hear like your neuroscience matters. It is why like in a 12-step meeting, if someone, if you relapse and someone says, well, you just didn't have it bad enough. You just need to add another chapter. That's somebody who has no understanding of, of the autonomic nervous system, of what happens, how powerful trauma is. And then again, when we get thrown back into our old story, something happens, there's a threat that comes in. And just to let you know, it's called neuroception. We are constantly looking for cues for safety, threat, or danger. And so what's a threat to me not, might not be a threat to you. So just the idea that when a threat comes in or there's a sense of danger, I'm separate from self. I have now gone into a trauma response. That is where I will drink, drug, cut, do porn, codependency, overwork, right? Because there's no self. You faced a life-threatening disorder. Yes, very much. And But just people understanding that anything that takes you outside of self, that causes you to think that you're here just for sacrifice and service, and not for the being in the process of being introduced to who you really are. Like that's what's amazing is that I'm in a process ongoing of learning who I actually am and from that place, a place of worth, being able to give to other people. Opposed to when there's shame, there's no it covers up who you really are and blame says, I'm gonna prove to you who I am all day by doing things for you, neglecting me. And anything you neglect can't grow. And we're called to be on a path of growth. So if sugar, because definitely there's food that's anonymous, there's diabetes anonymous, if sugar is something that w- w- is covering your pain, it's still an adaptive role that you have, then it is, it is serious. It does cause health problems. But the biggest thing is that you don't know who you are. And there's only one Stuart. There's only one Kim. And from to know where that's special and unique, that we are allowed and actually invited to go show up as ourselves in places. How many people listening right now are trying to show up as self, know they have permission 
to walk into the work, walk into church, synagogue, wherever, as their true self. Most of us walk in very covered up of who we are. Have you ever heard someone say, God first, others second, me last? Oh okay, so that makes me want to vomit. I'm actually preaching this Sunday at Watershed about that. Because people take joy and they put Jesus, others, yourself. That is an incredibly detrimental, bondage, psychologically damaging euphemism, looking at things. Like it, it is because, because without self, like, so those of us who are, let me say this, those of us who are in the church, and part of what we're taught is that Jesus was sent for you. So if, if that's true, if I'm that worthy, and Jesus was sent to walk this earth for 33 years for me, but then when I get sober and I get into the church, I'm told it's selfish, it's wrong, there should be death of self, it should never be about me, it should be about service to others. Well, who does that help? It helps people who are already at the top of the, of the, of the system. It doesn't help me know what God has for me. It doesn't help me know my purpose or how to repurpose my pain. All right, so if you are separate from self, then you're separate from the very, very thing, the very, the love, the trust. You're separate from anything that will allow you to know what chapter is next for you. There you go. And in 12-step, quite separate and apart mm -hmm. from churches, the saying is, repeatedly, you cannot transmit what mm -hmm. you do not have. That's right. Well, how are you going to have love for anyone yeah. or anything right. if you do not accept God's love for you first. Yes, that's right. And let me, let me throw this out, okay? Let me, let me explain this. So there's a thing called epistemic trust. Uh, again, you with hear, the I'm, term. I know, listen. There's a reason you listen. have all these diplomas hanging up but here. I love this It's stuff. very intimidating. I, I can imagine you with all your words It's very, it's very, yeah. I'm, Sir, you're an amazing man. I, I, you're very okay. accomplished. Okay, so go. Okay. go yeah. Epistemic trust means that, like, if you and I have epistemic trust with each other, if you have epistemic trust in me, it means that you will hear what I have to say, and you will decipher and decide what's relevant and what's not. It means if I'm giving you new information like I'm doing right now, you get, there's enough sense of self to decide, is this, is this applicable to me? Should I take this in? Right? So those of us... I'm open to it. You're open to but it. But I'm not just going to take everything. That's right. Oh my God, Kim said it, therefore... That's right. That's right. So people have epistemic hypervigilant or hypovigilant trust. Hypervigilant means I've been so hurt that I don't trust anybody but me and I won't take in any new information. Which means I can't get to my new chapter. I can't get to what's next because I don't trust anybody. I'm closed. I'm completely closed down. I can't receive. Hypo means whatever you say, I'm going to agree. Because you're my sponsor. Whatever you say, I'm automatically going to think you're that applies You're my preacher. To me. You're my preacher. So there's not a healthy you're skepticism. You're my guru. You're my therapist. Exactly. So there's not a healthy skepticism. Kim, tell me what to do. I don't know what that's to do. It. I'll do that's whatever right. you say. That's I'll read right. whatever you say. I'll go to right. England, whatever you, right. and you look, do. Look and at that's what, prime for a cult leader is what that is. A cult leader, but also think of the patterns you're going to have in your life because you're not having a sense of self to decide, huh, well, half of what Kim said sounds like something I could try, but this part is, is just not me. It doesn't make sense to me. 
having a healthy skepticism as you listen to pastors, as you listen to anybody, allows you to show up as you inside of it. Case in point, let me explain this. So they did an experiment, and they took moms who had a secure connection to themselves and the babies, right? These were young kids, and they gave them a stuffed animal. Two-thirds of it was a horse, one-third was a cow. So the mom said she cured connection to the kids, gave it to the little kid and said, hey, look at this cow. And the kid would giggle and say, no, mommy, that's not, that's not a cow. All right. And there was just an epistemic trust because of the secure connection. There was an epistemic trust. And so the kid could, could be curious and could question and could decide if they were going to take in this information. The moms had an insecure attachment to their kids. When they told the kids, hey, here, here's a cow, the kids were non-responsive. They just would look at their mom and look at the cow. Like they, you could tell they knew that something was off, but they didn't have enough trust to ask questions. They couldn't giggle. They couldn't be curious. When you have secure connection to yourself, you can be curious. I'm thinking of a mob in the middle of smashing windows and yeah. attacking, mm-hmm. who all of a sudden gets a message Oh, cult leader said, no more smashing. Yeah. And they leave. Like, yeah, right. Oh, my okay. God. Right. It's a mob. Yeah. You would think a mob is like completely... Out of control. Out of control. Yeah. No. Yeah. It's being controlled by mm-hmm. one person mm-hmm. who said, that's enough. Go right. home. That's right. And they're, not, they're not... So right. there must be people who are primed. Yeah. Because of because of unresolved trauma and, and dysfunctional goes, weight to look to this person and whatever they say, even if it conflicts from one right. moment to the next, that's right. You just completely turn over to that person, mm-hmm. and it it you don't have to you don't have to deal with anything. Right. You just do whatever they say. Right, and I can tell you, in their childhood, most likely, not always, there is an insecure connection. They don't know how to attach. So it becomes, so if you don't have a sense of belonging in your own family, you're just fitting in. Again, you're just doing survival techniques. I got to be the good kid. I got to be the productive kid, the perfect kid, whatever it is, being this family. Without that sense of belonging, someone else comes along and they are giving you approval. They're telling you you're good enough, but they're doing it for their own gain. You as an adult still don't know the difference. So that is part of why women get in, and men too, get in, horribly destructive relationships. That's why we end up in toxic churches, toxic work environments, because we're still Cults of seeking... of personality masking as Christian churches. Right, and so we still, exactly, we still end up wanting someone else to tell us that we're good enough instead of we have it within ourselves. We've heard it, and that's my thing. I've heard it from God, that what God did for me in my spiritual awakening, that I am more than good enough. I am forgiven, I am good, I am chosen. And I get to go through and do what I need to do. Now, you ever sit in that chair or on this couch? Uh, you probably sit over there, right? It depends mm-hmm. where someone else sits. But I sit there and sit there a lot. But yes, I sit so there. you sit next to him like this? Yeah. Well, pre-COVID, I could. Yeah. Right. Yeah. God, I miss that. Me too. Um, you ever say, um, "I don't think I can help you." Huh. I don't think I've ever had that stuff with narcissists. And how's that look? Like So 
So what happens most of the time when someone texts me for an initial appointment, I can tell they're narcissistic. And I have worked with one man. What's the, what's the little um, red flag? They're, they need to, me to know too much about them before I even meet them. <laughs> it's about their accomplishments, yeah, right? Yeah, name dropper. Yeah, it's about their accomplishments. If they walk in the door for some reason, they will always come in and they test. They will say, like, hey, can you turn the ceiling fan off? Could you get your water cooler to not be as loud? They will say something to see if they can control me. Um, on but, the flip side, mm -hmm. and I'm sure you've heard this, yeah. Kim, you've saved my life. You're mm. a saint. I owe <laughs> yeah. my whole life to you. Yes, I hear that a lot. And you say? I say, I'm glad to be a part of this, and I'm so happy to have watched you bust your ass and work hard to get to where you are. I I'm, I'm glad to be a vessel in it, but it's not me. I'm, I'm part of it. I will take that. I am part of it because I'm, I'm the one who's constantly seeking. It's each day I wake up and I want to understand what I don't understand. It's got to be really tempting, I know from personal experience, to internalize, um, and I just, I can't even go there and say, um, wow, this guy went from, you know, like, this wife was getting ready to leave him, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And now he has this multi, multi-million yeah. dollar house and this right. multi, multi, and he's got the great kids and uh -huh. everything. It's like, wow. Yeah. I must have done something. And then, yeah. but then I would have to, the guy who's dead, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know. No, it's true. Fentanyl, overdose, yeah. boom, no, it's true. dead. No, it's very true. But I, well, I don't put a lot of, value. I like money. I don't put a lot of value on, oh, you have a home and you're okay because I grew up with money and I still was abused. Right? So I don't put the value on everything's okay because of that. So, but the idea of someone now going, going back to college, changing their career because now they know who they are. All right. The idea is, is something that's more authentic that I'm so happy to be a part of. Whether they're in recovery or out of recovery, I'm distrustful of people who like the people I know, who, and I know people who have tens of millions oh, yeah. of dollars, oh, yeah. you would never, ever know. That's right. Like they are the last people yeah. to tell you. That's the way my dad is. And then I know people who within, I was telling a guy this morning, like the Hitler rule is, like how quickly you use Hitler in a conversation. Right. Hugh McCall. How uh, quickly they tell me they know Hugh McCall. That's, a, that's great. That's a test. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, so my, my dad grew up, absolutely nothing, hitchhiked to college, all the things, graduated top of his law class at USC. And if you see him, you would think, like, he's homeless, unless my mother dresses him. And then he looks like the cutest little Burberry-wearing guy ever. But he's never going to tell you he's an attorney. You may say things to him that he could correct, right, because of his vast knowledge and how intelligent he is, and he doesn't, right? He just lets people be where they are. And I, I've just, I've watched that. Now my mother's an antithesis, right? Because she is very, if you see my mom, you know she's money. Like you, you know she's money. But my dad works really, really hard, and his name in the community is Gentle Jim. And you don't hear many attorneys with the adjective gentle. He's just a really good guy, 
And so that's been my role model. He's a good guy. That's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, he I'm did not. I'm delighted you have yeah. that. When I was 18 and went to college, I called home after about a month, and my mom answered the phone. And she said, there's no one here that wants to talk to you. And she hung up. And my dad didn't know that until probably I was in my late 30s or I ever told him that. He just figured I was fine at college. And so, like, he didn't really know a whole lot of what was happening because he worked so much in the household. So he knows now. He knows now. But it was my part of my saving grace was having a dad that I knew loved me. Um, I made it about me. Which but thing? I, all of this. Okay. But <laughs> so maybe I'm the narcissist. No, you're not narcissistic. You're, um, you're very curious today. I'm all, very curious. It's I'm great. always curious, but I this is. Yeah, I am. But it's a different curiosity today that I'm seeing with you. It's not like, well, I'm, I'm, well because I'm trying to grow and I'm at yeah. a kind of a pivotal, yeah. I'm at a very pivotal point. I feel like yeah. crying right now. Yeah. What will um, stop you from crying right now? Uh, this shouldn't be about me. Hmm. Maybe it's supposed to be. Well, here's what I want to know. Okay. There are people in long-term recovery mm-hmm. who are hurting. Yes, because they've never addressed you, you the it. things you mentioned: yep. shame, yep. trauma. Mm-hmm. That's right. Big book. Nothing. 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 It's not. It's taking a wrench. Yeah. When you need a knife. Ooh, that's a great way of putting. It. I like that. You need. Yeah. You need incisive. Yeah, I like it's, that. It's using a searchlight when you mm-hmm. need a laser. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how were you able to get? through the 12 steps and then beyond. How were you able to get to the healing, addressing shame, trauma? Great question. So one- Tell me a story. Okay, being a psychotherapist makes it easier, but. (laughs) So, and I had about 10 or 11 years sober and I do think something very significant happens with emotional sobriety when you get to about 10 or 11 years. I- In your case, it was. So here's what happened for me. I made a list of things I was gonna do for myself I struggle with. Instead, it was simple things like take my clothes to the dry cleaning, but it was all about self. And I plummeted quickly and just stopped eating. And so I ended up um, in treatment, even with 10 years sobriety and being a psychotherapist, full schedule, all that. And I ended up in uh, partial hospitalization for an eating disorder. And it was painful, but pivotal and it was necessary. And it connected me with me starting to seek different types of therapy besides cognitive behavioral therapy. Because for me, cognitive behavioral therapy doesn't go into the trauma. And I found this woman named Connie Burns in Asheville, Black Mountain area. I went to one of her workshops and it was all about basically, in my words to tell you, what they teach, what she taught me was that what you don't release, you recycle. And I was recycling how my body had been treated when I was young. I was recycling how I felt my level of worth was with how I interact with food. And side note, relationship with food many times is parallel to relationship you have with your parents. So I felt restricted from love, so I restricted myself from food. I also felt chaotic with my mom, and so I also would binge and purge. 
And so I just hit bottom. And by being in a four-day workshop with Connie Burns, I could not do 90% of the instructions she gave. And it was things to help you release your pain. And I couldn't do it. And I still started getting things better. Things like? It was things like doing right hand, left hand. Meaning like with your right hand, if you're dominant right hand, you write a question to the younger part of you still yeah, hurting. Yeah, it's like a lot of parenting. It with your left. In your left hand, it was stuff like that. I couldn't even do it. And answer I didn't have to. It's the little kid answers. Yeah, that's right. So it was a lot of reparenting. And something started for me then. And it took me to a different level of therapy and recovery. And I started learning that I had a lot of energy in my body, a lot of traumas and past experiences in my body and that I had to figure out how to release that or I was going to continue to get sick, whether it be a physicality sick or it was going to be the emotional sick that I was, and things changed for me. Well, now I get to tell you why I super, super respect you. Oh. Tell me twice. I will. Okay, go ahead. Um, it's, it's just so easy to say, I've got my shit together. Yeah. Like, yeah. I've got my client load, I've, right. got, I've got my house, I've yeah. got my partner, right. I've got... Two so doggies. I've, two doggies, yeah. check the boxes. Right, yeah. So, so you will have people you, who will say, well, you just need to be more grateful. Yeah, yeah. Like, this you just need to make yeah. gratitude lists and right. you just need to thank God for yeah. what you have. Yes, that's very dismissive and very shaming. And then you stay in the same church. Yeah, that's right. You stay stuck. Yeah. And you get more and more miserable. Right. And You're right. And then to your shame is treated with people heaping more shame that's on That's exactly it. right. They shame you for being ashamed. That's exactly right. You got it. Which is why the name of my book is But Your Mother Loves You. Because when I started talking openly about my mom abusing me, and I gave very small examples here, People said, but she's your mom, but she loves you. So they were telling me that abuse was love. And so they were doing the same thing she did, was coupling love and fear. Right? Abuse and love coming together. And that's why whenever you use these words and these abstractions, love being the most diffuse of all, mm -hmm. I say, tell me a story. What yeah. does that look like? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Because it, it, it's got feet on it. Like People need to know. So when, if, okay, let me use one last term. All right, and then I'll shuffle with my terms. So there's this thing called mentalization. And to me, this is the core of the two greatest commandments. Love your Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is, if I can't do mentalization, it's really hard to love my neighbor as myself. Mentalization means that I hold my mind, I mean, I'm sorry, I hold your mind in mind. It means that I'm securely connected to myself, and you share with me what's going on, and I hold your mind in mind. I don't think for you, but I think how I think. I think from your point of view. I hear from your point of view, not my old story, not my trauma, not my pain, but I'm thinking like, what's it like to be stirred? And then my questions for you, my response to what you're saying to me, I'm mentalizing it, is coming from that place, not from my story. Because my story, if, if I'm unhealthy, says, just write a gratitude list. Just 
just be grateful. You live in a, in a great That's country. That's my prescription. That's right. My, so, my need to be right. Mm-hmm. And it's about me. Instead of I mentalize, and that's how we trust. That's how we have secure connection. That's epistemic trust is that I'm going to say things to you like, well, Stuart, it, I have no idea what it's like to be adopted, but I would guess that it would really like there would be a, a longing, a void in you. Is that what you've experienced? That is why when I was on your podcast and you said you'd been shunned by your church. Right. I hurt. I hurt. Oh, thank you. Because it's, it's connection then, right? Instead of Well, I don't know what it's connection. like to be a gay woman. Right. And I will never know. Yeah, I agree. But I'm a fucking yeah. human being. Yeah. <laughs> and right. that hurts. It yeah. hurts when yeah. you have given so much mm-hmm. and you, you, you had expectation that right. they would live up to the yeah. The highest and noblest right. ideals. Right. right. And that they would behave in a spiritual like right. forget about spiritual. How's about you being a fucking human being yeah. to me? I agree. You know? I agree. And this is this is what's so great <clears throat> for me about being in recovery and not just twelve so just just life recovery, right? Is that they did what they did. And I could decide to be complicit with what how they were treating me, or I could step into all my recovery knowing what God did for me at Kinko's 20 years ago, all the things, all the meetings I've gone to, all the recovery I've done, all the things I've released, and instead trust, epistemic trust with God, that whatever was next for me was going to be beautiful. And so then I could leave the church and now be at Watershed in a place where they are just, they love my wife, they love me, and everyone's allowed to show up and belong at the table. I love hearing that. Yeah, it's beautiful. If we got struck by lightning today, and the only thing that survived was this little piece mm. of digital audio, mm. what is your legacy? Mm. Great question. I, my legacy is the intersection of psychology and spirituality, and that's called transpersonal psychology. What that means is, trans means beyond. My legacy is I want people to go beyond their first story. I want people to go beyond what their uncle said about them, what their grandfather did to them. Like, go beyond what you knew first and to do what you can to start understanding what you don't understand. We spend too much time understanding what we already understand. Like, go beyond that and find that unique, special core, who you really are, not who other people say you are. Talk about empowering. Mm. Yeah. God bless you for making time. Thank you, sir. I enjoy being around you, and I enjoy making fun of you. (laughs) (laughs) You've got so much material. Yeah, it's great. It's just softballs. It's It's just softballs. It's just sweet sweet little softballs for students. It's just softballs. Yeah, but anyway, no, I followed you for a long time. I am proud of you. And then I think you're you're ready for, it sounds like, let me mentalize with you for a second, and you're ready for what's next. I hope so. Yeah, it's really cool. God bless you. God bless you. Kim Honeycutt goes to Watershed the Church, and her practice is local, and boy, got a lot out of that. Thank you, Kim. This was fun. This was fun, and it was super enlightening. If you want to hear me and hear what a good job Kim does talking to me, and I do even more talking, 
Her podcast is called Flip Your Lid, Flip Your Lid, by which she means uh, getting beyond the gray matter on the top of our head and down to the yellow reptile brain, the monkey brain that so often runs things without us knowing it. What, what overrides all the gray matter and how to reintroduce a sense of, of calm, get beyond shame and get beyond trauma. Thank you, Kim. In Her Words is a production of the Queen City Podcast Network in cooperation with Balto Creative Media. Allison Andrews at Andrews Creative, Rachel Clapp Miller and Roshonda Pratt are developmental producers. Sally Higgins at Higgins and Owens tries to keep us legal. Our music is A Day at the Park by the group Pictures of the Floating World. Your announcer is Catherine Smith. That's me. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and take a moment to rate and review. It really helps others find us. If you love us, go to our Patreon page at patreon.com. Look for Man Listening, one word, no spaces. A small investment makes a big difference in lifting up the voices of women. A huge shout out and thank you to everyone who has supported Man Listening and the In Her Words podcast from the very beginning. Thanks so much. Thank you for your support. We believe one voice can change the conversation. Thanks so much.